Up next on Chapters, we'll sit down for a conversation with the artistic director of Live Arts, Don Krishnaswamy, to talk about a very important fundraiser coming up right here in Franklin. Immediately following that, we sit down for a conversation with Norfolk Police Officer Michelle Palladini. So stay tuned for another edition of Chapters. My name is Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. On today's program, I am joined by the Artistic Director of Live Arts, Don Krishnaswamy. Welcome, Don. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. We are talking today specifically about Live Arts, which is a wonderful organization located right here in our backyard, which brings first-rate classical music performers, composers right here to our area in Franklin so that we don't have to go to Boston and New York to find this talent. And this is the talent that that is playing in Boston and New York. On Sunday, October 6th at 3 p.m. at the First Unitarian Universalist Society located right here in Franklin on 262 Chestnut Street, Live Arts is holding their annual fundraiser. And this fundraiser is a wonderful performance by two artists. And can you tell us about those artists? Yes, we have uh, Victor Romano from the Boston Symphony Orchestra. He's one of the violinists in the orchestra. He's an absolutely phenomenal, dazzling artist. Uh, And uh, his wife, Lisa Romano, on piano, they will play a violin and piano recital uh, for our annual fundraiser concert. They are very, very kindly donating their services, uh, donating their artistry to come help support our organization. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things I love about your organization is what I said earlier, the fact that this is first rate entertainment. These these artists are people that are playing New York, Boston, the major hubs, and you are getting them to come out right here in Franklin. Yes, we're, we're very committed. We always have been to bringing impeccable, high quality of music that you might hear in any of the world's concert halls yeah. right T- to this town. Tell me, Don, about the history of live arts. Well, it was uh, founded about 17 years ago in our 17th uh, season, uh, uh, kind of as a as a. Uh, branch activity of the uh, Unitarian Universalist Society in Franklin, but it's not, it doesn't have any religious affiliation. It's sure. just a concert series that mm-hmm. they kind of uh, house in, in their uh, edifice. And uh, so, you know, they started back in the early 2000s, uh, you know, putting on these kinds of concerts. I joined uh, on the board a few years after that. I played a number of concerts and recitals on the series. And about five years ago, I became artistic director. Sure. And you've been a professional musician almost your whole life. Yeah. Yep, that's, that's uh, since the age of nine, playing the violin. I perform as a violist now. So, you know, I've had about a good 30-year career at this point. And it's a family affair, too, right? Yes, that's correct. Your, yeah, your my, wife and your... Yeah, my, my wife is a, a singer and actress, and yeah. my all my kids are, are musically gifted and are involved in some way in music, and my brother is a cellist out in Seattle. Yeah. So. As an artist, Don, I'm interested in your perspective, and a professional artist at that, on Franklin as a cultural district. What does that mean for you in, in terms of uh, uh, us being a hub for, for the arts? Well, uh, I, for me, it means I feel really grateful to be uh, like here I am, you know, so far out of Boston mm-hmm. in an area where you might think, well, what's going on out here? But it's very meaningful to me that I've actually kind of stumbled upon simply by moving out to Norfolk, um, stumbling upon enriched by by the arts and culture. And it, it just it, it also, of course, um, you know, we, we kind of had a, a 
built-in audience in the sense that people out here already were looking for for high-quality classical music. And right. it's not like we had to try to convince people that, you know, this is something worth hearing. So, you know, we, we do have our crowd that doesn't care if it's a Patriots game on a Sunday. Right. They're going to come to our concert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not that we the do, Patriots I will are... say we do stay away from Super Bowl Sunday very right. religiously. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Live Arts is, is what we're focused on today, and Live Arts Fundraiser coming up Sunday, October 6th, 3 p.m., 262 Chestnut Street, Franklin, Mass. That is the first Unitarian Universalist Society. You're going to hear wonderful music performed by Victor and Lisa Romano. Yeah. Uh, these two are, again, first-rate musicians uh, where primarily do they normally perform well i mean you know uh, victor is a member of the boston symphony so he's most often seen in the boston symphony but he does a lot of solo uh, work as well i i couldn't tell you all the places he performed sure. he's very very active he's sought after he's he's a very very engaging virtuoso performer and yeah. we can't wait to uh victor and his wife lisa romano are playing right here in Franklin, and you'll get the chance to hear them up close and personal at the First Unitarian Universalist Society. You'll get to meet them afterwards. You'll get to meet Don and the rest of the board of Live Arts, and importantly, get introduced to the community that is Live Arts. And also, if I could say, being a fundraiser, it's it's a great opportunity just to support the arts. I mean, the ticket prices are a little bit higher at this concert because people are coming out to, to offer their support, financial support to this uh, organization. That's it. It's it's perfectly affordable and you'll pay more than this in Boston because you also have to commute in and find parking. We know how much that costs. just going to say, last time I checked the parkings, Free. 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 Right. <laughs> Our favorite number. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Live Arts. Wonderful season that's coming up. Yes. And it's a big birthday that you're celebrating this year. Yes. Well, Beethoven, the famous Ludwig von Beethoven, was born in December of 1770. And so 250 years uh, later, we find ourselves in 2020 almost. So we're kind of getting a jump on that that birthday by celebrating his tw- 250th during the night. 19, 2019 to 2020 season. Um, so every single concert this season of our four concerts features a work by Beethoven. You were talking a little bit before we came on the air about the pre-concert talks yes. that are given by a board member. Talk right. about those a little bit. So we have a, a musicologist on our board. We're very grateful to have her. Her name is Ann Sears. She's on the faculty at Wheaton College, and uh, she does before most concerts, a pre-concert talk at 2.30, where she'll just go into some details about the composers you're going to hear in the music. And it it's really nice for an audience member to have a little more kind of background on, on the composers and the music. And it helps amplify the listening experience. I, I just think it adds context. And, yeah. and for me, who um, I can tell, talk, tell you that talking to Don in person, his excitement is infectious. And oh, so thanks. when you're speaking <laughs> about a musical piece, you tend to bring it alive. And it, and yeah. it really... Uh, changes the way you listen to a piece of music when you know the context. Yeah, absolutely, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's a musicologist, which frankly I didn't know there was such a thing. Yep, that's a that's a field. Makes absolutely. a lot of sense. Yep. So um, I hope to see everybody out there uh, again. The website is www.liveartsma.org. You go onto that website, and Don, importantly, people can buy a season 
subscription. Yes, they can buy a season subscription uh, before the season starts. Once we've had a concert, you need to buy individually. But before the season starts on October 6th, if you go to liveartsma.org, you can find where you can purchase a subscription for the season. Our concerts are on October 6th, November 3rd, February 17th, and April 19th. And we have a special event uh, in Milford, actually, collaborating with the Claflin Hill Symphony, where a couple of artists from Live Arts will be performing a uh, concerto with the orchestra. I'm one of them, and we have a, a live arts favorite, Irina Murasanu, um, a violinist, and we together will be performing the, a piece by Mozart for violin, viola, and orchestra, just to help raise awareness of live arts up there in Milford, and to help people in Milford learn, uh, or people in, in um, Franklin who go to live arts, learn a little something about this good orchestra that's up in Milford. So. It's, it's great, and what a way to uh, support arts in our community. And Don has, uh, being a musician, teacher and a professional musician himself commented to me about the quality of musical education we have here in the Franklin Public Schools. And uh, I, I tell you, supporting uh, live arts is more than just supporting a concert series. It's supporting an opportunity for children. There's not, no better learning opportunity than to experience it live, would you say? Right. Well, I know as a child, uh, it, I went to many, many chamber music and orchestra concerts, and it just, it, it was a part of just seeing how the, how the pros do it and just being in that world, soaking that in. And the youngsters who are studying music today really need that to, to feed them, you know, feed their souls. They also, if they play the same instrument, they'll notice things that the professionals are doing that they've been being taught to do. And they can see, oh, yeah, that's actually a thing. It's mm -hmm. not just my teacher talking about something. Yeah. They actually do hold the bow that way or yeah. they do such and such. And so all the way around for these youngsters, it's a really important uh, dimension on their uh, instrumental learning experience. You know, Don, before we go, I wanted to to revisit a uh, part of a conversation we had last year at this time, and it fascinated me. I'm a big blues fan. Um, I love the blues, and one of the things I like about the blues and jazz is the improv improvisation. And you were saying last year, you were drawing some analogies, uh, and you were talking about not so much improvisation, but uh, technique and style, and, and, mm -hmm. and how each artist can put their own imprint on a piece, even though the composed piece has very specific arrangements. Can you talk a little sure, bit about that? Sure, sure. I've always been jealous of jazz artists because they can just go on stage and they've got to have an impeccable understanding of music theory to do it, but they, you know, they can kind of do riffs on the spot. And we classical musicians are very staid as an S-T-A-I-D <laughs> in, in just doing exactly what's on the page. Yeah. Why? Because the composer wrote something a certain way and it's like reading an audio book. You're not going to make something up. The author wrote the book this way. You've got to read the book right. that way. Yeah. Uh, but the the person reading the book can put their own inflection. The, the author did not indicate anything in the book about how to read a sentence. Uh, as long as you try, try to be faithful to your sense of what the sentence means or the paragraph means, every different person will have their own way of reading it. And it's, it's exactly the same in classical music. You you stick to what the notes are, but you interpret the way you see fit. But the the stipulation is you have to try your best to be true to the composer. Sure, like being true to the author to get their message across the to the best ability that you see that they were intending. As a professional musician, though, that must just that ups it even more, the ante even more, because you have somebody really walking a tightrope, right? Yes, and and you must be sitting there listening for that mm -hmm. for that. 
interpretation. Nudge in that yeah. interpretation, right. right? To right. see how close to the line they can get. Right, or... exactly. And as I say, everybody will have, have their own. And, and it's it's not right to, you know, to say, well, that's not that's not the right interpretation. I mean, I guess we do that sometimes, but but if someone has really studied the music and is a you know seasoned artist, they're going to have a valid uh, interpretation and take on what a composer did. Yeah. But again, you have to play the notes that they wrote, and you have to play what we call dynamics, which are the louds and the softs and the getting louder and the getting softer and the accents and all that. They stipulate all that, the composer does. Mm -hmm. So you have to be true to that, but beyond that, and there's some, even sometimes right on stage in a performance, we'll suddenly phrase something maybe a little differently than we might have in rehearsal because something comes to us right on the spot, you know, and that's when it gets exciting when the musicians together are kind of feeling this in real time as they perform. It's the excitement of live performing. Anybody that thinks that classical music or chamber music's boring needs to sit with Don Krishnaswamy for 10 minutes and just chat with him because I'll tell you what, his, you. your eyes come alive when you're talking about this and it's the same type of uh, reaction I have when I hear a good guitar solo and yeah. music's music. Music I, is music. Music All is music genres. and it's just a, a wonderful art form. Again, Live Arts October 6th at the Unit First Unitarian Universalist Society here in Franklin, 262 Chestnut Street, October 6th at 3 p.m. That's a Sunday. This is a fundraiser, the big fundraiser for live arts. At this event, you can meet Don. You can meet the rest of the board. You can also purchase your annual subscription, which will help live arts know exactly what their budget is for the year. I, having been around the nonprofit world, I know right. that's a helpful number it is to a have. helpful kind of nudge to the season. Exactly. Yeah, helpful nudge. But at the very least, come out and see this wonderful performance by Victor Romano and his wife, Lisa. They'll be performing for two hours, Sunday, October 6th, from 3 to 5 p.m. So, Don, I want to thank you again for coming out. Thank you for your stewardship of the arts in our community, and I look forward to seeing you and the rest of the board on October 6th. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And in studio today, my guest is Norfolk Police Officer Michelle Palladini. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. So, Michelle, you are a school resource officer, a detective, and a patrol officer with Norfolk. Did I capture all those titles right? I think you did. But importantly, you have a program which you developed, mm -hmm. and you now have taken nationwide called LEAP. It is a program that trains other school resource officers on techniques to become better school resource officers, right? Correct. If, if the goal is met, right? Yes, absolutely. And what does LEAP stand for? It stands for Leadership, Empowerment, Awareness, and Protection. And LEAP is really a unique program that challenges police officers to look at their role in the community differently than they've traditionally looked at it with the goal of, of providing uh, better service to, to the citizens. Is that right? Correct. How do you do that? With LEAP. Yeah, so it was really interesting when I started LEAP back in 2012. I had an idea that I really wanted to work with kids in my community and I wanted to teach them skills uh, like leadership, ways to be personally empowered, some things that they should be aware of as young people, mm -hmm. you know, not just drugs, but also, you know, digital safety and things like that yep. um, and how I could protect them. So that's really where the acronym came from was mm -hmm. to teach them these skills. Mm -hmm. From there, I had approached the school principal with my idea for this like small after-school program, having no idea where this path was going to bring me. Yeah. So fast forward to 2018, and I'm now not only teaching school resource officers how to also 
teach kids in their schools that program. But LEAP has also become an acronym for the officers. So teaching the officers ways to lead with authenticity, ways to empower themselves with um, things like mindfulness, things to be aware of and ways that they can protect and serve their communities um, from a place of, you know, authenticity. Right. And, and you know, Michelle, we've been working together now collaboratively with the SAFE Coalition. And, and SAFE is, a, is an organization of, of uh, community partners surrounding the issues of substance use disorder. Um, so we see the kind of the ugly side of what happens in social and emotional needs aren't met and trauma goes unaddressed and um, people feel like they have to self-medicate. This goes beyond that. This goes to treating the whole person and, and importantly takes a police officer and hopefully helps them discover their why. Why are you doing what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, why did you get into police work? Yeah, you know, there's a a lot that you just brought up there that's really resonating with me. I had started uh, my career in law enforcement because my father um, was a state trooper the better part of my life, and uh, I wanted to be just like him. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Must be awfully proud. He was a state police so. officer? He was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he did actually all the Whitey Bulger stuff. So that was kind of wow. his claim to fame. So no kidding. I really, um, I saw how hard he worked mm. and I saw really kind of what went into the job. And he always said, you know, that he was helping people. You know, he was taking bad people off the street and he was making the streets safer. Um, so for myself, I really wanted to kind of follow in his footsteps. And I really went into the job kind of with that vision that I could make a difference and that I could impact a community in a positive way. Right. And as opposed to, you, you describe your dad uh, and you reference the Norman Rockwell painting, the famous yeah. painting at the diner with the police officer uh, approaching a young man sitting next to him at the diner with a very kind look on his face mm-hmm. and a nice gesture. And you talk about how um, police officers don't have to live into someone else's version of what they believe their role should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? And, and yeah, definitely. You know, when I started my career, and it's actually um, interesting, I started here in Franklin, mm-hmm. um, in my hometown. And um, when I started, I kind of had this, uh, I guess, uh, utopian view of the community of Franklin, that yep. there were no problems in Franklin and nobody had issues. Um, and being a young 22-year-old being hired um, as a police officer was really eye-opening. And my my vision of what a police officer was, was somebody who protected their community and served their community. Mm-hmm. Well, what I was finding when I started was there was a whole lot more protection and kind of reactionary policing. So responding to calls for service, seeing um, people engaging in really destructive behaviors. And it really kind of of skewed my, uh, my not only my worldview, but my view on policing as mm-hmm. a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really kind of went into bad space early in my career where I didn't feel like I was making the impact that I wanted to. Um, so playing the role that you thought you were supposed to play as a police officer, which, mm-hmm. which was investigate a crime, see whether or not there's a crime there, be confrontational, right? Would that be go yeah, along with that? Yeah. I mean, we have to have command presence, sure. you know, and we have to, you know, respond to a call and act, you know, efficiently and respect, you know, people's rights. And um, at the end of the call, it was kind of, you know, you kind of wipe your hands clean of it and you walk away. And that that never felt right to me. So it's not resonating with you. Was there ever a time when you thought of giving up on being a police officer? Officer as oh, a result? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Early, early in my career, um, it was a, just like I said, it was a really challenging time. Um, not only was I young, so I was under the age of, you know, 25. Sure. My brain was still developing. Yeah. And, you know, I was seeing kind of a different uh, vision of, of the larger impact I thought I could make just, just wasn't there. Um, yeah. So I was really kind of a little bit downtrodden on the job. Yeah. Um, Tell me, Michelle, was there a point in time that you can recall where that you had a mind shift where you said, you know what? 
I'm going to take a risk here. I'm going to be authentic to who I believe I should be as a police officer. Mm -hmm. Do you remember a time where that happened? (laughs) I do. Um, You know, it's funny you use the word mind shift because it was really when I found mindfulness. Yes. um, Which is really um, just paying attention to the present moment on purpose with Mm -hmm. kindness and curiosity. Mm -hmm. So I I kind of went back to this when I was a little kid. You know, I always tell the story to folks. When I was a little kid, I was really compassionate. And I was the kid that, you know, went house to house to collect canned goods for, you know, um, the homeless. And I was always like doing this, these little like philanthropy projects as a kid. I wanted to save the world. Right? Sure. Yeah. And the world kind of like beat me down, you know, as a teenager and a early 20s um, individual. Um, so when I found mindfulness, I started seeing that I could kind of come back to that little girl who wanted to help everybody that wanted to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And when I started looking at the world through a lens of curiosity, so understanding the why behind people's behavior, I was able to almost connect the dots backwards. And to think of a police officer practicing mindfulness, people, <laughs> a lot of people might under traditional stereotypical views say, what are you talking about? The next thing you know, they're going to be meditating. How mm-hmm. dare they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but these practices aren't new. Right. This is not some sort of newfangled idea. These have been around for hundreds, if not a thousand years or more, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it, the problem with mindfulness today is it's become kind of a buzzword right. and kind of a panacea for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, just do some mindfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll be way better in your life. Um, and people also attribute kind of almost like a religious connotation to mindfulness when it's really just a mindset. Um, it's really kind of living in the present moment. It really has nothing to do with what type of, you know, um, religion you, you practice sure. or subscribe to. It's just a um, experience of being present and being curious about the experiences that you're involved in. Right. Michelle, how did you apply that mindfulness at that young age? How Do you, do you remember how you first applied that to the job and the reaction you might have thought you were going to get as opposed to the one you actually got? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because the approach is, I guess you would say, a little bit softer. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're spending a lot more time on your calls for service because you're really trying to investigate, I say, with compassionate curiosity. So not only are you looking at at sort of the clues that are involved um, as far as a crime goes, but you're also looking for clues and insights into somebody's behavior. Mm -hmm. So I wonder why this person is, you know, addicted to this particular substance. Oh, interesting. If you learn more about them, you know, when they were a child, they experienced a traumatic event or, you know, perhaps there was substance abuse in the family or maybe they had a surgery and became, you know, um, addicted to the medication. So when you start really being curious about the why behind somebody's behavior and really Really being present and really listening to them, you start discovering more about the person in ways that you can um, intervene and help and connect them with services. And, and connection really is a key word there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a connection to the person. It's a connection to their past. Mm-hmm. It's a connection to yourself, first of all. Mm-hmm. But then it's also creating connections in the community so that you can better serve that person. So right. as you say in, in some of your material, material around LEAP, when there is a situation that doesn't fit into the policing silo, you're able to refer them out to social services. Services. And that's something you've really done effectively in your role here in Norfolk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? I, I think it's it's the most important thing that we can do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to kind of um, go back a little bit with how it's received, I think um, this is different for policing. You know, we've we've come a long way in our profession and we're we're doing a lot more now um, around community policing and around um, assisting people who have, you know, mental health um, issues or substance use disorders. So we're really um, we're coming a long way from where we used to be. Um, But we're still not there yet. And I think this approach takes a lot more time. Um, Some may consider it a softer approach, but I always say that the softer approach is the harder approach.
stage, um, it's 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 more difficult. It takes more time. So I want to remind everybody we're speaking with Michelle Palladini. Michelle Palladini is a school resource officer and detective in Norfolk. Uh, Massachusetts. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find me at my podcast, chaptersradio.com. Michelle, um, when you create connections in the community, you're really sending a message to not only the people that that you're having to enforce laws on, but to the community at large that your role is a little different, aren't Mm -hmm. you? Yeah. And, you know, it's something that, um, ironically, this morning I was at the local coffee shop, uh, Scylla's, which yeah. you may know if you've sure. seen me in there before. And I um, I take an hour every week to sit in the coffee shop and I advertise it um, to residents of the community so that if they have a question, they feel like they can they don't have to come into the police station. Sometimes that can be awkward. Um, they're not the most welcoming of places. So, you know, they have to talk to somebody behind glass. Um, so I love being out in the community and being able to sit in the coffee shop and engage with people who come in and you know it's all different types of people and sometimes they're just saying hello sometimes they're just coming in to shoot the breeze Um, or sometimes they have something serious they want to bring forward or they have a question so it's so great to be able to be accessible to my community in a place that's welcoming we were talking before uh, we came on the air and i was saying that whenever i see someone and they know that we work together they'll say how's michelle paladini (laughs) and it's never followed up with she's the police officer she's the cop in mm-hmm. town. Um, it's always always followed up with she's one of the nicest people that I know or some other descriptor about who you are. And and I really find that it's flattering, obviously, for you, but, but I find it very instructive because you have stepped outside of the uniform and become a different type of resource for the community. Michelle, we were talking a little bit about some experiences that you've had and su- some success stories um, employing these uh, these models. Can you recall any in particular that might help us relate to what it is you're talking about? Yeah, definitely. Um, one story that I'm thinking of in particular um, involved a young man in my community, and you know he had some challenges. There were some things going on at home, and you know when we look at the school resource position, you know a lot of people think there's a lot going on in schools today. You know, safety and security is paramount. We right. have to keep our schools safe. We're even talking about arming teachers in some some right. sectors. <laughs> that could be a whole other show, Jim. Right, I'm sure it can. <laughs> um, you know, but we look at things from a safety standpoint, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like, all right, well, what else can that school resource officer offer that school community and offer the children and the parents um, apart from just the safety? How about the emotional safety? Um, So ways I kind of step out of the box is really looking at, you know, um, one child in particular who was having a really challenging time. Um, His grandfather was really sick and he was um, dying in Mm. the home and he was very close to his grandfather. Mm. And so often I think we look at things through our kind of adult lens of experience that, you know, well, it's his grandfather. This is a natural progression of life, you know, death and dying is an unfortunate part of life and we have to kind of move past it. Um, But for this child in particular, he had a few things kind of um, working against him in his life and the um, near passing of his grandfather was very traumatic for him. Mm. And I I had a relationship with him in that I was teaching in the health class that he was in. Mm -hmm. And I I actually teach the kids mindfulness skills. So I actually teach them mindful breathing because if we can teach our kids how to manage their emotions in healthy ways, they're not going to resort to some of these risky behaviors. I was interested to see, Michelle, just uh, that one in four children, uh, according to, to your statistics, mm-hmm. suffer trauma before the age of 16. Yeah. So these are important skills. Really important. And I and I don't think that people necessarily look at trauma as um, trauma is more of a uh, mindset. It's more mindset than it is experience. 
So what may be traumatic to me may not necessarily be traumatic to you. I'm so glad you said that because to the non-professional me, I think of trauma throughout my life and how that's changed. Mm -hmm. You know what? Going to school in eighth grade for Jim Derrick was mm -hmm. extremely traumatic. Just walking down those hallways because mm -hmm. I was bullied. Uh, I wasn't allowed to sit at certain lunch tables. That was traumatic. Yeah. Today, I have a different definition, but I love the way that you recognize that it's all relative to what your experience is in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were saying you had this young man. Yeah. So this young man, um, you know, a lot of, and I did hear a lot of adults in his life say, you know, well, he just needs to kind of deal with it. Like yeah. his grandfather's passing. It's really, you know, not a big deal. Um, but what we have to remember is that to him, it's a big deal. And this could set him off on a path of some really um, risky behaviors if we don't teach him how to manage this in the moment. Um, so when he had a, a particular kind of um, breakdown, if you will, he had asked his mother, um, he said, I need help. And his mother said, well, who do you want help from? Like, who like who do you connect with at school? And he said, my school resource officer. And that to me was um, not only so heartwarming, but it also showed that uh, that I was doing something right in the school, of that course, I was yeah. doing my job in the very best way I knew how. So when I brought him into my office the next day, I said, you know, talk to me like what's been going on and he explained that you know his grandfather was like screaming in his sleep and it was really scary to him um, so we kind of brainstormed some ways to kind of manage that and I said you know I, I'd encourage you to maybe try a mindfulness app on your phone you know something like that and he said well it's really interesting officer Palladini I started using those breathing techniques that you taught us in health class and it was like a mic drop moment sure um, that this this young boy um, eighth grade you know and kids kids in eighth grade are not easy to warm up to no, new ideas, especially no. things that are outside the box. Um, but he was using that tool and he's uh, doing very, very well today. This was a couple years ago and he's what, doing great. What a great example. And, you know, and that is the age. And, and as we know now uh, from a lot of research, um, issues of substance use disorder, mental health issues, they come, it is a mental illness, first of all. It's another way of, self, it's a way of self-medicating for those mental health issues. These issues don't start when you're 22 years old and you decide to pick up heroin. Mm -hmm. They start when you're in middle school or earlier, elementary school, or even earlier than that. And uh, the earlier we can start intervening with healthy coping uh, strategies, mm -hmm. the less carnage we're going to have down the road. And, and, and it's so important to have people like you, Michelle, that, that know this. You have a, an acronym for policing that you use called CLUES. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about CLUES? Yeah, um, the CLUES model uh, really developed out of sort of this, this structure that I was already working within. Um, and I was trying to be cute with the acronym because, mm -hmm. you know, we as police officers look for clues. Of course you do. Um, of course. But the clues that I was looking for um, were more insights into behavior, insights into that background that could really help us understand what the um, folks that we're working with, yeah. um, you know, are, are kind of going through. And the idea behind clues is to help um, reduce our calls for service with this particular person um, and also help them get some help. So it's kind of um, meeting two goals at once uh, because naturally somebody with mental health issues or substance use, they don't want to be dealing with the police every week. They don't want to be calling the police. Um, so how do we kind of bridge that gap? Um, so CLUES stands for collaborate, listen, understand, empathize, and solve. I, I, you know, and the, there are so many words in there that I love, but empathize is one of the ones that I that just jumps off the page. When you see a police officer in a uniform, the first thing you don't that does it jumps to your mind is not they're going to have empathy for me. No, you know, I was just <laughs> I just went on a rampage. They're going to empathize with me. Right. How do police officers 
call on their empathetic skills mm-hmm. in a situation that may be highly charged. Yeah. So the the best thing that an officer can do with empathy is not it's not looking at an us versus them. Mm-hmm. And I think so often in law enforcement, we kind of have created this divide between uh, the citizens and the police um, officers simply because we're law and order, we're authority and control, and the community is not. And we've been taught to kind of have this command presence, which obviously serves us well in situations that we need to stay safe. But we often apply this type of um, kind of adversarial, you know, authority and control to every situation we encounter when it may necessarily not even warrant that. So how can we approach situations with empathy? How can we share in the emotion, not necessarily the experience, but we can share in the emotion. So somebody is having a really hard time because, um, you know, they're angry with their parent over something and they're maybe in um, kind of, we call them like drunken tirades. You know, somebody's been drinking too much Mm -hmm. and they're really upset. Um, I actually had an experience like that with um, a young man who was living at home with his parents and he was um, really upset because his dad wanted him to do something. He was an adult. He didn't want to do it. He was intoxicated. Um, So the way in which I helped to deescalate him was I shared in the emotion. So I was like, hey, you know what? I can remember times that I didn't get along with my parents. I totally get that you're frustrated. I understand how you're feeling. And he was like, I'm mad. And I was like, yeah, you should be mad. I understand how mad feels. And it immediately de-escalated him because he stopped seeing me as, well, she's a police officer. She's a uniform and she's meeting resistance with resistance, right? Instead, she's going to play that role that I'm expecting her to play. Right. Yeah. Because I'm just another person in his life that's mm-hmm. telling him what to do, mm-hmm. which is the same thing that his father was trying to do. Interesting. So it's a little bit of verbal judo, right? Sure. Like we're, Great we're, way to describe yeah, it. Yeah. So we're taught how to do that. Verbal judo is empathy, but how can we do it um, in a way that's authentic? That's authentic, right. Because people will see through it quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have to really feel the feeling behind the emotion and understand what people are going through on a deeper level. Mm-hmm. I remind everybody, we are speaking with Michelle Palladini. Michelle Palladini is a school resource officer and police officer with the Norfolk Police Department. Importantly, she has a program called LEAP, which stands for Leadership, Empowerment, Awareness, and Protection. Uh, Michelle is, has a Facebook page. Uh, the Facebook page is Michelle Palladini. Mm-hmm. Uh, you actually have a couple of Facebook pages. One is your I mindfulness <laughs> content, yes. and the other one is your police officer. I urge everybody to go out and like these pages. Um and get to know Michelle through her postings. You're also a public speaker. I need to add that to your to your <laughs> resume. Um, who will you speak to, Michelle? Uh, really, uh, anybody that will have me share the message. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, I speak for um, audiences that are educators, police officers, um, and also community members. You right. know, I, lo- I do a lot of um, presentations for my community. I do monthly coffee chats right. with parents on a variety of topics. So as much as I can get out in the community and share messages of positivity and hope and wellness, um, that's within my wheelhouse. That's my passion. And I'd urge you to go onto the website. It's michellepalladini.com. Yeah. Palladini. It's P-A-L-L. A-D-I-N-I. A-D-I-N-I. I I had to look to Michelle to make sure I didn't mess it up. (laughs) Dot com. But go on there. uh, Subscribe. I believe she has a subscription for her newsletter. Yeah. Um, And uh, there's great content on there. And you can find out how to contact Michelle. Michelle, what other things are you involved with? I know you're involved with the Safe Coalition. Yeah, um, I do the Safe Coalition. Um, I'm also on the Board of Incorporators for the YMCA, Mm -hmm. which is another amazing organization. Um, And I've been involved with them for about a year. And every time I uh, do something 
with the Hockamock YMCA, I am uh, usually moved to tears because of the work that they're doing in the community. So it's um, really been an incredible organization you know, to be part of. One of the posts that really got me on your Facebook page, you talk about moved to tears. <laughs> and here is a, a totally a situation that I just can't imagine a police officer would help solve. But you had a woman who, and you didn't t- talk about what the need was, but had a need in the community. Mm-hmm. And so you took it upon yourself to go to the Norfolk Police Union, mm-hmm. right? Let them know about it. They immediately wrote a check mm-hmm. to cover assuming part of or all of the need that this person had with yeah. a letter. And you delivered it to them. Mm-hmm. Just blows me away. <laughs> well, you know, we have a really amazing police association and um, we really want to give back to the community. So it's really about identifying um, people in need. And it's in- interesting we're talking about this because I did a uh, post today. I'm trying to do these weekly mindfulness right. challenges mm-hmm. for people. And, and I've accepted a couple. Have you? I Good. Have. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. You know, you you put yourself out there in a way that's authentic and you hope people don't think you're nuts. So and for the first, <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's it's awfully uncomfortable at first when, when you go out. And I believe one of them was to look people in the eye. Yeah. And uh, what was the balance of that one? Because I I did it. It was two weeks ago. Yeah, it was um, to see people That's first, right. um, you know, so not to look past people, not to be caught in your own kind of rundown of what you're doing. And because you think of so many times we are present, but we're not present. You know, we're waiting in line at the coffee shop for our order. And maybe we're responding to an email or maybe we're, you know, looking at the time we're rushing instead of being fully present and actually connecting with the person who's directly in front of us. So and you know something, uh, you, we're Bostonians, so we're trained to say, hey, how you doing? Yep. <laughs> and the answer back, so I'm good. How you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, and no one hurt each other. That really nothing happened. Guilty as charged, by the way. I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm one of those people. Uh, I went to Ireland recently, and and I'm not Irish, but it doesn't matter. I sat down at a pub, and I wanted to see if it was true. If if it really, if these people really engaged me in conversation, when they say how are you, they don't mean how you doing. Mm-hmm. They really want an answer. Mm-hmm. So when I met them with the response that I'm used to giving, ah, I'm fine. How are you doing? No, actually, what do you do? Who are you? Where are you from? Tell mm-hmm. me more about your family. Yeah. And the conversation got pretty deep pretty quick. Mm-hmm. It was uh, interesting. But the challenge you're talking about, I believe, was the um, where I had to repeat over and over in my head, in my mind, mm-hmm. I see you, I see you, I see you. And yeah. you caution people not to do that out loud or they yeah. might be taken away. But, that would be pretty weird. <laughs> but, <laughs> and you know something that worked, but it was it was really strange at first. And I think the point I'm trying to make is a lot of these practices seem complicated at first, just like everything. Mm-hmm. But if you practice them, it does it get easier? It does. And um, the challenge today was to just notice what you're noticing. Um, it's another mindfulness practice that allows you to be so present in the moment that you're really listening to people to understand them rather to reply in sort of those rhetorical questions that you were just saying, like, how are you doing? Well, I don't really care how you're doing. I'm right. just saying that to be polite. Trying to get moving here. Exactly. <laughs> trying to move along to my next thing. And, and don't get me wrong. And it's, you know, it's funny somebody said something to me today in the coffee shop. She said, oh, Michelle, you know, I love your postings on social media. I wish I could, you know, be more like that. How did you figure that out? And don't get me wrong, not not every moment of every day is is perfection where I'm connecting with people on these like really deep levels. But um, I try to highlight the moments where it's effective and the moments that it works because I have more good moments these days than I do negative moments. You actually share the ones when you're not having a great day. You talked about uh, your busy mind the other day and suddenly looking at your daughter playing with your dog and realizing, mm-hmm. whoa, wait a minute here. I got to slow this train down. So yeah. you're very authentic about about what's going on in mm-hmm. your mind and it helps people relate a lot more quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to picture a 
my age, we'll go with my age, 58-year-old grizzled veteran <laughs> of the police department looking at you and saying, I'm going to do what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is it? What what types of responses do you get? I assume you get some that are quite there, skeptical. Yeah, there are a wide range. Um, yeah, it's kind of like you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but but you can in, in many circumstances. And I think the power of story is important. And I think getting people to see um, cause and effect and how things come full circle is is also really valuable for people. Um, so you put something out there, you put yourself out there to um, do something that's maybe outside of the box. So hand delivering a check to somebody um, who you noticed was in need. And, you know, and this this person who was in need in the community, um, I found out about, again, because of presence of mind, because of being in a space where I actually, uh, I guess I was sort of eavesdropping, but I overheard somebody's conversation. um, And there was a person in the community that was really sick um, and nobody really knew. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was kind of a a more uh, prominent person in the community. who uh, had gone through a hard time and not a lot of people knew about it. So I thought, you know, hey, there's a way that we can uh, intervene in a way that's positive and, you know, respects that person's privacy, but allows them to know that they're, you know, cared about. This all comes back to the why. Mm -hmm. And it starts with the why, right? And ends with the why. So if I know why it is I'm doing what I'm doing, whether it's a police officer, a priest, a radio host, whatever it is, if I know what my why is Mm -hmm. and I know what I want the outcome to be, Mm -hmm. uh, then... I want to be able to get there because what I'm hearing you say is that, and, and I have the pleasure of working with a lot of police officers now and getting to know them through the Safe Coalition. I haven't met one yet who, who I would say comes to work and says, my why today is to go to bust as many people's chops as I can, put as many people in jail as possible as I can, regardless of what their ultimate outcome is, go home and have Cheerios. That's not what I see. I see the other side of it. I see really, really good people mm-hmm. who ultimately... What they really want is that is to protect the safety, health, and welfare of every single citizen that they come into contact with. Those mm-hmm. that are doing the wrong thing and those that are doing the right thing. Yes, they want to protect people by putting people in jail. Mm-hmm. But there's also people that find themselves suffering from addiction and other traumatic maladies where they want to have their ultimate outcome has to be the wellness of that person in front of them. What's the quickest way to get there? And what I'm hearing you say mm-hmm. is that knowing what that why is... Okay, mm-hmm. knowing what you want the ultimate outcome to be, we can take one or two approaches, the hard way or the easy way. Mm-hmm. And while this may feel harder, this mindfulness approach, this mm-hmm. clues approach may feel harder at the beginning, practicing it may yield a better outcome. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, you're, you're pretty spot on. And I think in law enforcement, you know, there's a high burnout rate. Um, and there's also um, this, this kind of idea that we move from sort of this uh, compassion to skepticism to cynicism. And, you know, it can be really challenging when you see the same people over and over that, you know, can't get their life on track. Right. So it it leads to burnout and people become cynical and say, well, obviously nothing we're doing is helping. Um, But if we have that attitude, we're losing our why because our why is to protect and serve um, no matter what. You know, so it's bringing it back to the why. And, you know, this is nothing that, you know, I created or developed. Um, I actually um, took this from Simon Sinek. I don't know if you've ever read any of his work, but I'd encourage your listeners to check out his book, Start With Why. And if you're not a reader, he has a TED Talk that's called Start With Why. That's where I saw him. It's great. So he has this thing called the golden circle. Yes. And it's the what, the why, and the how. So if you look at it from a business standpoint, most businesses know what they do. 
most business know how they do it, but do they know why they do what they do? Um, and he relates it actually to Apple computers um, and kind of their what, how, and why, and how they've really kind of changed the dynamic of marketing. Um, Michelle, I am so struck by so much that you've said today. Um, do you remember one particular, do you have one particular anecdote or story that really drove this home for you that you were on the right track? Yeah, um, this is a story I've uh, I've told many times, and it's probably the most important story that I have. In um, talk about bringing it back to the why, mm. uh, there was a young boy who was getting in a lot of trouble um, in our school, and he really um, was dealing with a lot of challenging things at home. Um, and I, with permission uh, from his mom, I've uh, she lets me share his story. His father uh, passed away from a heroin overdose mm. when he was four years old, wow. and you know you talk about the why and talk about the reasons behind a child's behavior. You know, here he was now a 13 year, 12, 13-year-old boy who was um, posting threatening things online. He was posting things um, about school shootings, um, which obviously we have to take very seriously. Um, if you look at that story on the surface, you think, all right, here's a really troubled kid. Maybe get him into counseling. I don't know. Figure out what's wrong with this kid. Um, so all of these kind of behaviors were combining. And if you look at the collaborate piece of clues, how are we all collaborating to figure out what's really going on with right. this kid? You know, there were a lot of um, missed signs, but there were also a lot of missed opportunities. So there were um, somebody actually had said to me, you know, do you really think, you know, we should give this kid a pass? I mean, yeah, his dad died, but he was four. Do you think he even remembers it? Um, and that really, wow. I know, it really hit wow. me hard. And, you know, no no judgment on, on the person who said it because they simply don't know what they don't know. Right. Um, and if you've never learned about trauma, you don't realize how trauma is stored in the body. Um, this child remembers everything about his father, and it's manifesting itself in behaviors as now a young man who's coming of age, and he's trying to figure out life, and he's trying to get attention in all the wrong ways. Um, so... This young man had gone through kind of a really um, difficult time, difficult behaviors. And as the year kind of progressed, um, I started um, developing a relationship with him and um, checking on him here and there and kind of um, cultivating a relationship. And it had been a couple of months and I realized that he hadn't been in trouble in some time. And I actually, uh, I have a way to go into the school system. I have a login and as a school resource officer and I was able to look up his discipline record and he hadn't been in any trouble. And I thought, this is fantastic. You know, I'm going to reward him right. and um, talk about being part of a community. Uh, I have parents in the community who know the work I do with the kids and yep. they donate um, gift cards and different things for me to give to the kids because they believe in the positive reinforcement and they believe in the work that I'm trying to do. So I had a gift card. I donated it to him and I said, hey, you know, I'm really proud of you for doing a, a great job. And this kid, I mean, biggest smile on his face and he went skipping down the hallway holding the gift card over his head and really excited about it. So from there, um, I actually got uh, kind of called into the office and um, I was told that a lot of the people in the school were kind of concerned that I was rewarding this kid for doing what he was supposed to be doing. And if we kind of have that mindset that kids who are troubled shouldn't be rewarded for having good behavior, um, we're in a really dangerous place right. because his his deck is different than the other kids. You know, kids that have two parents at home, that have a loving family, that have the white picket fence out front, they may still have their own challenges within their home, and I'm not taking anything away from that. But this kid's been dealt, uh, a, for lack of a better word, not a great hand. The measure of success for this young man... Mm -hmm. And for everybody is relative and you're and you're recognizing that unique 
right moment, right? Yeah, and we know the statistics um, for kids um, like him, and you know, there's a lot of other pieces to the story, obviously that I haven't shared, mm-hmm. but you know, one of the bigger pieces is losing a parent at a young age to a drug overdose. Um, that that is setting him up sure um, for failure in life. So we need to wrap our arms around these kids. Like these are the kids that we need to help in any way we can. Um, so I kind of spent the night thinking, you know, did I make the wrong decision? You know, should I have really rewarded this kid? And I felt in my heart that I was doing the right thing. And the next day I came in, um, to my office at the school and I had a letter in my mailbox and it was a letter from this young man, um, thanking me for the gift card and explaining, you know, how much, um, the conversations I was having with him meant to him. And it was like such great validation that I had made a connection with this kid. And the fact that, a Uh, He was 12 at the time, 12-year-old boy would write a handwritten letter. And it was, you know, it wasn't a card. It was just on, you know, some scrap notebook paper that he wrote this letter. So it was from the heart. His mom didn't make him do it. So it was just like such great validation. And that was actually pretty early on in my school resource career. And it's, um, there have been a lot of stories since then. Isn't that neat? And and so you get, you get, that's the real life validation that you're mm-hmm. on the right track Definitely. and in, in an age when um, you know a lot of people wanted to silo him and and, and put him into the box of danger danger mm-hmm. you're you're recognizing and rewarding his yeah those are the success. kids we need to embrace yeah yeah, yeah. Um, Michelle I can't thank you enough for coming in today and sharing uh, some of, of what you do um, I am uh, thrilled to be working with you on the safe coalition it's an honor and a privilege and I absolutely love Uh, what it is that you do and how you approach your role as a police officer. And I love your approach to mindfulness. And I'm encouraging everybody to go on michellepalladini.com. Take a look at the website. Michelle is available for public speaking. She'd be happy to talk to you. And she's nationally recognized uh, speaker, taking her program of LEAP out to other law enforcement agencies so that they can employ these types of practices. So for my guest, Michelle Palladini, my name is Jim Derrick saying thanks very much for listening to Chapters, and we'll see you next week.